Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian, and Marcus, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Hey, welcome to coffee.me podcast. We are back again. Hey, uh, everybody. Marcus Young next to me. I'm Valerian Ra. And we are here to talk about coffee. But before we talk about coffee, let's talk a little bit about wine. Yeah, it's been a nice way to jump these podcasts off, which um, you may be listening to them in the, your car on the morning commute or something, but we typically record them at the end of a long day. So cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Mm. So what's in a glass? Uh, this one is uh, orange wi- wine or skin contact wine, which again is one of uh, from my portfolio. I made this last year, and uh, you know what do you, you might wonder what skin contact? So basically, it's a white wine made like red wine. It's skin macer- macerated, which is very unusual for white wines. Usually not uh, done that way. And as a result, you get this orange color and kind of like, what would you say the flavor is kind of like full, very tropical, right? Yeah. And I, for me, I really notice the impact on the mouthfeel of the wine. It picks up these buttery, sort of viscous, you know, almost like thick and oily mm-hmm. characteristics um, that you don't normally associate with with kind of crisp and clean whites. You know, of course, you can have Chardonnays and things like that from their processing, but it's it's lovely. Yeah, so this one has also little tannins, which is unusual for white wines. I mean, I had some orange wines or skin contact wines which had much more tannins, and that was a little bit weird even for me. That said, some people enjoy that. So, you know, um, I think this is a very unusual way to make wine, and I think it's very fun and it's not new by the way you know georgians people from georgia the country gruzia they make this wine for centuries like this and um, well th- thanks to them i guess it has a renaissance i guess yeah a hundred percent it's um if you're lucky enough to live somewhere with a kind of a wine merchant that's willing to bring in some oddities or even a bar that kind of focuses on these wines it's it's amazing when you get to wines from Georgia, just how much variety you can find. Um, yeah. But how much tradition is there as well? Yeah, we think that, you know, everything is Napa in France, but actually not. There is a whole world out there uh, of wines we don't know about. And if you keep open mind, you know, and uh, open palate, you can experience these with, uh, you know, you can discover something interesting with these wines. Yeah, so. 100%. And I think... Um, you know, it, it's nice to have this coffee podcast and to think about wines because a spirit of an open mind mm-hmm. um, and a, a spirit of experimenting and trying new things. I think that's um, that to me is one of the biggest things that maybe we can learn from these kind of new wine movements and, um, you know, being open to things like Robusta, which Valerian and I, <laughs> <laughs> I get very excited about it. I think Valerian gets very nervous about it. Um, but it's, um, I think it's a major part of where we have to be be aware of in coffee is just being open-minded, being game for novel and new and unique flavors that 
I was not expecting that you throw me onto the bus with that. <laughs> Alright, so the thing is that, you know, uh, with Robusta for me, I just don't like it and it's okay. By the way, this one is 100% natural wine, so there's no sulfites in it. And if you don't like this kind of stuff, that's okay. You don't have to like 100%. it, but have open mind about it and experience it. And I do try to find the Robusta for me. I just couldn't find it. I cannot go through that kind of rubbery taste. I'm sorry. So maybe maybe one day you introduce me an interesting robusta. Yeah, we keep trying to find them. I always keep cultivating clients and and friends, and I'm learning about robusta myself. I always like to be humbled by by things that I don't understand, and robusta is the great humbler in my mind. So before we move on, let me throw somebody else under the bus. So I talked to Noel Diaz. They, we had a wine for his wine last time, the Purity wines, and it's interesting that he he hates. Uh, lightly roasted coffee. He thinks they are acidic. He thinks that they are kind of acidic, and and yet he produces some quite tangy. <laughs> one might even say sour, right? Flavors of ferment <laughs> in some of his wines. Right, I totally agree. And it was interesting that you know I think that acidity is much more intense on a wine than on a coffee. Yet he will be okay with a wine and not okay in a coffee. So that's kind of interesting uh, flavor. Um, experience for me that how people are sensitive in one group about you know f- let's say acidity and another the group they go like oh no no I totally it's fine I tolerate that that's a normal yeah. part of the thing right and it and it's expectations and what do you you know what do you expect from something that's so familiar and so ubiquitous as coffee um, and and clearly how you think about balance balance is for me the that's, word I love the balance of the things. The key. But expectations I hate because when you expect something, then you already judge it, right? You're already giving it a kind of like a notion that this should be like that. And I think that... Yeah, let me clear my throat. I'm <coughs> robusta. <laughs> I think we're going to have a special robusta episode. We have to find a, a guest maybe to, yeah. to talk about with us. We did so have if- a robusta episode. Uh, we had, oh my gosh, the guy will kill me now. Uh, he actually, uh, I think he's German who is uh, working in Vietnam on coffee. And because Vietnam is, especially at that time, two, three years ago, was specializing, especially in uh, Robusta. Mm-hmm. So he was working with a lot of farmers yeah. who do Robusta. You yeah, know, he's so. still the largest Robusta producer in the world. And yeah, maybe I'll, um, I'll give a shout out right now to my buddy, Will Frith, who just opened his new business in Vietnam called Building Coffee, which is a lab and innovation center similar to what we offer here at Boot Coffee, and I'm really proud of him. Um, And he also keeps floating me some really great examples of Vietnamese coffee, including some nice Robustas. So we'll start noodling on who might be a fun guest to to bring to the table with us. Yeah, and try some Robustas, and then you can... Toss me under the bus a few times. No, no, but I think, you know, of course, these are also questions you all could send to us that we could we could struggle with. We try not to ignore them, but we might struggle with them and not have good answers if it's about things we don't understand. It's interesting that it has a lot of acidity in this wine, and, but a lot of sweetness, and that's where the balance uh, is very in place, right? That the sweetness supports that kind of high acidity. I can feel that acidity on my throat. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't bother me at all. It's just like, it's perfect. Yeah, it gives it like shape. It kind of elevates all the characters here in those 
kind of fresh honey and mm-hmm. stone fruit, like really like almost an overripe peach. And peach, right. It's, it's so nicely supported by, by that acidity. Yeah, so that's, I'm very proud of this one. I have to say, anytime I open a bottle, I think about what happened, you know, is it just pure luck? Because, you know, I'm not a, a orange wine maker or skin contact wine maker. I, have, I don't like to use the orange wine name because um, some people then ask me, oh, is it made of oranges? I said, no, it's made of white grapes. But you know, Every time I've served an orange wine to friends and things at the home, that's the first thing that they ask. So, yeah, it's, it's a funny problem. All right, let's move on to the questions. The first question is from Valerian Hrala. Oh. <laughs> no, I, I, want, I want, you know, there's something to settle. I have to say I was uh, thinking about this for a long time, but I think it's time to settle this because, you know, um, it bothers me. So what size of a coffee, coffee roaster you should buy? This is one of the most common questions you guys ask us. Like, you know, you started a business, what size shall you buy? And usually I refer you to uh, my article on coffeecourses.com, you know, and uh, the article is called something like do not get burned with buying a small roast or something like that. And not long ago I saw, uh, I think it's a reaction to that article because the, uh, the name of the video is very similar, just twisted a little bit. And it's kind of like in a pretty, I think, uh, crappy way, this, the, uh, this article. So I just want to tell you that I wrote this article based on my experiences as a person who is in the coffee industry for a few years and I made many mistakes. So I basically named those mistakes, especially they came with a, a purchasing a small roaster. Um, but I will have a buddy with Marcus here and I want to discuss, you know, like uh, what size of a roaster should a, a new company buy? Yeah, and, and I've read both of the articles and I know you, of course, very well, Valerian. And I also know, I'm just going to name names because I'm, oh, really? I'm transparent here. But I, you know, I know S- Steve a little bit and I know a lot of the team at Mill City Roasters, um, which Steve owns. Um, and, you know, and I, and I see valid points to both of your approaches. And I think, you know, your very pragmatic recommendation based on personal experiences doesn't stray too far from what I would typically recommend with buying a roaster. Trust us, everybody. We'll get to the details here in just a minute. <laughs> um, but, you know, I can also see Steve's point of view, which I think, you know, from Mill City's point of view can kind of be summed up of as um, a proof of concept, you know, purchasing maybe a machine that's that you know is very small, that is maybe too small for you to really grow and scale with in a meaningful way to create a business. But having a training platform, a practice platform. Right. So, you know, I, I can see value there as well. No, totally, um, yeah. So, yeah, what size roaster to buy? Should I just ans- answer how I would answer this, Valerian? Go for it. And I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I do the, you know, follow-up. Yeah. I'm curious. We never talked about this. So yeah, I'm no, curious, we haven't. Yeah. Um, you know, I I will say that I think most of the folks that that ask this question of me typically have their sights set on a roaster that I would consider to be too small. Mm-hmm. And usually I, I just start running some basic math with them based on, you know, the experiences of um, seeing Question Coffee grow, um, the experiences of seeing um, Central City Coffee, the two companies that I was involved with, uh, with the launching of. And um, boy, starting with too small of a roaster can be really frustrating. So I think 
you know, a business owner really needs to take a long, hard look at their goals, at their business plan, at what their financial model looks like with their their realistic goals for, you know, one year, two years, five years, um, and purchase a roaster that they can live with for that period of time. Um, usually that means something on the scale of 10 kilos or bigger, maybe even 15 kilos. And I, and I come to that number because when I think of a wholesale roasting company or a roasting company supplying coffee for their own cafes, you know, in, in the U.S., your wholesale clients could range in volume from 20 pounds a week at the small side, you know, sort of a mom and pop cafe, um, not super busy, but maybe really integral to a neighborhood, all the way up to 200 to 300 pounds per week. So you start doing the math and thinking, okay, so those are some of my sales. I have my website. I have direct-to-consumer sales, maybe through my own tasting room or my own cafes. I have some bakeries and restaurants that are buying coffee at 15, 20, 40 pounds a week. Boy, you know, you don't need to get too many of those customers before suddenly you're looking at 1,000 pounds a week that you need to accommodate roasting. And if, say, if you're roasting 20 pounds per batch, you can safely produce three batches an hour, do the math, and it tells you how much time you're spending in front of the roasting machine. Um, and for most entrepreneurs, I think their time with a new company is well spent in front of a roaster, honing their craft and really keeping an eye on the product. But their time is probably equally well spent out in the community, talking to customers, exactly, yeah. purchasing um, you know, media and advertising and promoting their product. Uh, so, you know, so for, I think that's the risk of going too small. And and I saw that with a friend's company um, that started off in Portland and was roasting some beautiful coffees. And they ended up having to buy, I think, three roasters in like 18 months as they just kept exceeding their sales goals. It's a good problem to have. Um, it's a major distraction mm -hmm. when you're trying to sell a roaster. Um, I'm going to be the devil's advocate to my own answer, which is that, you know, it's not the end of the world if you need to sell and scale up your roaster because there's a dynamic marketplace out there for used roasting equipment. Yeah. Um, again, it's a distraction and it takes time and effort to sell that and to decommission the roaster and to install a new one. But you usually don't get hung out to dry on the value of the equipment. It holds its value quite well. Um and, you know, as far as having a tool that kind of proves your concept, and I think also just proves to yourself that you actually like standing in front of a roasting machine day after day, hour after hour doing that work, there is a lot of value in that. Um, and the good news is that there are a lot of machines out there that maybe are appropriate to prove your concept with. I don't know that they're quite appropriate to truly start a business with, but when you look at the number of roasters, um, you know, Valerian, you had a hookie that uh -huh. you recently sold. Um, you know, San Franciscan makes their one pound SF1 roaster. Um, there's a number of home roasters out there, the Quest M3, the Bullet, that are small scale machines that give you the controls and the adjustability of a larger machine. They really drive you to understand how to craft a profile. And maybe most importantly, when you outgrow those, they can serve continued utility in your company as a small, maybe rudimentary sample roaster, 
as a lab roaster, as a tool for roasting kind of those boutique higher end coffees. Okay. Uh, I, I get it all and I think I agree with you in most of these uh, things. My point was, I think, you know, one of the things which I love about the coffee industry today or since I'm working in it is the camaraderie and, you know, things that in most cases, you know, when we disagree, we kind of still kind of learn from each other, you know, and we respect each other's opinion. I don't think, I don't think this video was done that way. So it was (laughs) like, you know, for me, it was like all gloomy and sad, you know, I am doing uh, videos in Slovak language for many years. And I got a lot of like horrible, like, you know, trolls. So I have a scheme for that. It's just kind of a little bit sad because I think that most city does have a name in the industry, you know? So it was kind of like, yeah, I, I, kind I of annoying, maybe, I would say. Yeah. And maybe my impression of it was a little more different as I saw it as Midwestern earnestness, okay. not as anything um, divisive. And, you know, I, I, I saw it as just a counterpoint to the conversation. Okay. So that said, you know, when it comes to proving a concept, well, it depends how much money and time you have. I think if you want to start a business, you probably will leave some other job. And if you don't, you're just toying around, not starting a business. If you leave a, if you leave a job to start a business, you better make you know, profit as soon as possible to feed your family. That's, that was always my, my goal. Right, yeah, I always had a roaster to learn on, right? I had you know, the, the uh, what was it, up and roast in you know, 2000, whatever it was, you know? and I had a hooky, which again is amazing, was amazing sample roaster, was amazing learning roaster because I could try different things on it. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but for business to start with a small roaster for me, again, repeating that for me was a giant mistake because it's not that easy to sell a roaster. I just have one for sale, guys. If you want a 15 kilo guarantee, it's on sale. You know, it's you. We basically losing big money on it. If you want to buy it, you know, it's around 8,000 euros in Europe. Go for it. You know, it's three, four years old. You know, because if we outgrew it again, <laughs> so right. and, that happens. Yeah, and and I get that, and I think you know, it's it, it gets to the idea of resources are limited when you're starting a business, right? You write your business plan, you have your capital expenses penciled in one line item, you've done your forecast for the year, you know what your burn rate or your loss rate is. Um, You know, hopefully it's something you can manage for the first year and recoup in the second year. Um, But yeah, it's always a game of trade-offs. And and I think to your point, if I had a, a limited amount of resources, which is the reality, and my option was to buy a small roaster to prove my concept, later on buy a larger roaster, but because of having money tied up on that small roaster, I wasn't able to buy mm-hmm. essential tools for my lab, a color meter, um, all the cupping supplies that I need, uh, espresso machine, tools for my all of my quality control and my product development. Um, all of these things are essential. And boy, I, I would hate to have to give up one of those in order to just prove my concept when I could maybe start proving my concept on a small roaster when I'm running this as a hobby before it's a business. Cause you can prove your concept with friends and with family. You could do a farmer's market while you're working full time. Um, you can buy roasted coffee and see if you can sell it, right? You don't have to roast it right away. If you, if you wanna, if you wanna prove a business concept, yeah, you know. Yeah, 100%. So, so what size roaster to buy? I'd, really look at your business plan honestly right right so see what your resources are and what your goals need to be i think as you said 
at some point you need to support yourself and your family on this business. And how long can you coast before the income is doing that? Right. So I'll tell you, you know, again, it's our case in Green Plantation. That's my European company. And the reason I'm mentioning it because we had to really bootstrap there a lot. And as Marcus mentioned that, you know, uh, it's not all what you do is roasting. I mean, actually roasting would be your smaller part. If you love to roast, be a roaster for a bigger company or whatever. Uh, if you start a business, you're going to be a business person first, dealing with, you know, marketing, bureaucracy, your customers, your sales, your employees, your employees, exactly. <laughs> but if let's say you don't have employees yet because you just started, right? Right. So what we have actually in Green Plantation, we roast two days a week. That's Monday and Tuesday. The reason is, so if we send it out on Tuesday, people get it the same week, you know, so by Friday they have fresh roasted coffee. So that's very important to us, the freshness. Mm -hmm. So it means that we roast two days a week. Uh, you roast probably half day or maybe a little bit more unless you package. Again, we're talking about bootstrapping. We don't have staff, you know, so, you know, at least we didn't have any started. So you then you can do a calculation very simply. You can think, and this is a very like rudimental basic thing. You can think how much money do you need to survive? How much money do you want to earn basically, right? Then you can calculate how much money will your business approximately eat? Just basic things like rent, right? Let's say that would be a big one. You add it together, then you think of a wholesale price and a profit you're going to make, let's say four or five bucks per you know, pound, maybe, I don't know, you yeah. make up your numbers. Yeah. You divide that big number, which is your you know, cost and how much you wanna earn with that number. And then you get another number. And then you basically slowly realize you can do three rows an hour, right? And I did this math with like $100,000 a year. I was like, okay, I want 50,000, 50,000 would be the rent and whatever, you know, which here would be funny, it would be very cheap, right? In a Bay area, but maybe somewhere is fine. And it, you know, it turned out that the 10, 12 kilo, 10 and 15 kilo roaster is something I would need. Yeah, I mean, I just did 100,000 divided by four. So mm -hmm. $100,000 at $4 per pound right. profit on your coffee. There's 25,000 pounds. Mm -hmm. That's not a lot of volume. 25,000 divided by 52 weeks, you know, you're doing 500 pounds a week. Yeah, but you lost only two days. Yep. So, yeah, it's, it, it adds up quickly. And, you know, boy, 25,000 know, pounds isn't a big roaster. That's, you know, what Roast Magazine calls a micro roaster, 100,000 pounds and less. Right, right. So, and you can you can do it yourself. It's a little help of you know your family packaging and yeah, stuff. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but so. I, but I think that's a that's a great exercise to go through. Yeah. So uh, which what size to buy? It's up to you. Whatever which model works. I mean, if you want to roast every day, and some people do, I mean, then maybe the small roaster is perfect for you. You have everyday fresh coffee. Yeah, and yeah, but I do think the other thing to consider is that you gain roaster capacity from every manufacturer I'm familiar with. You gain capacity at a much faster rate than you spend money. Right, so let's say a five kilo mm -hmm. roaster might cost you $25,000 and a 15 kilo roaster might cost you $35,000. So you're tripling your capacity, but only spending 
$10,000 more. And many roasters are pretty so. cool, so they let you roast, you know, if it's a 15 kilo roaster. Actually, I will guarantee 15 kilo guarantee we like to roast anything between 6 to 10 kilos. We actually don't like to put any more into that. So. Right, and at 6 kilos, you know, boy, if you're not able to sell 6 kilos of coffee, then your business isn't working. That's exactly. another way to think about the numbers. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. Like, if you can't sell that coffee, oh boy, you don't start a business. You know, again, you can roast it as a hobby. You can be a trainer. You can be many things in a coffee world. But business is about business. I learned it the hard way. I was horrible at business. I just love to roast, you know. So anyhow, so this is like, you know, our take on what size of roaster to buy. I think the main take away from this is like do the math, you know, how much money you want to earn, how much money you want to earn doing it yourself, right? 100%. And uh, then you get something basic, right? Then you will know approximately yeah. what size of a roster you want. Yeah, and yeah, and you can just play with the numbers and see if it does pencil out to have a smaller roster to start with. That, you know, my recommendation would be make sure that you can roll that into another aspect of your business, though, in the future. Oh, I have one another idea. Yep. With minimal risk, what we did with Anish Coffee, and here is a shout out to Coro. There will be no Anish Coffee if there is no Coro. I don't think I could afford to start another business. Like I wouldn't have money to, you know, for all the equipment, even basic equipment, and especially rent in a Bay Area. It's just so crazy. I would not be able to start Unleash Coffee. Coro is a place where you can rent roasters per hour or be a member. So a hundred percent, and a lot of communities have these now, right? There's right. Pulley Collective on in New York and mm -hmm. also in Oakland. Coro, of course, in Berkeley. There's Buckman Coffee Factory in Portland, um, Mr. Green Beans and Trevin, I think, also roasts time on his, rinse time on his roaster. So look for these novel ideas. To that point, we never would have launched um, Central City Coffee um, if we had made the investment in a roasting machine as well. I remember for the first nine months when we were proving the concept, I was doing all of the roasting on borrowed roasters, and even my time was being eaten up so much. Mm -hmm. So in that case, we found a roasting company that would allow us to allow me at this point to source the coffees to develop the profiles to qc those coffees and to do the packaging and and that sort of production line work um with the the staff of the nonprofit. but we offloaded the roasting to somebody else that just had the capacity and the time and was doing that you know 10 hours a day five or six days a week it worked really well so you can start great companies with innovative models. Yeah, there you go. Like I just had the idea. Let's, so if you are in Slovakia or Hungary, because we are in Komarno, which is the borderline, and you want to use the roaster on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in Komarno, go for it. You know. Yeah, 100%. There's so <laughs> much untapped capacity. Who knows what roastery cafe might, might be game to letting you bust your chops on their machine. Cool. Let's move on. Perfect. All right. So you read the question from Matt. Yeah, Matt, nice to hear from you. This is Matt from Cafe de Leche. And well, he says that he loves the podcast. So yes, that was a good one. <laughs> Maybe a sure way to get your question on the air. Just kidding. Um, Matt's question is about adjusting a roasting profile as coffee ages. Um, they've had a few coffees that started out wonderful, juicy, but as they enter or near what you might call the past crop zone. They start to taste woody, papery, sometimes underdeveloped. Um, and he's just seeking for advice on how to adjust those profiles. I think this is a great question. Um, I think, it, you know, I do want to just have a little bit of a primer of, you know, when we talk about past crop, 
that might be different than when we talk about aged coffees or coffees that taste aged. Um, there's coffees from certain areas that hold up incredibly well and may actually taste better a year after they're harvested when quote-unquote fresh coffees are coming available. Um, and I like that Matt's very specific because he describes kind of an old coffee really well. When it starts picking up woody, papery, you know, we use that term baggy sometimes. Um, that's when you're getting those off flavors in coffees that are old. So I just wanted to start with, start with that um, observation. And yeah, what do you do with them? I mean, do you just roast them dark and do cold brew with them? I don't know. Valerian, what do you think? Okay, so uh, first of all, hey Matt, uh, it's nice to hear from you. Uh, you were a great guest when I, um, sorry, host, I was the guest. <laughs> you were a great host when I was in LA. Um, and you know what uh, he, you know what he does? Together with, with his wife, Anya, he makes his kids listen to this podcast in a car. They're trapped, they can't escape. So I, I apologize to his kids for uh, <laughs> suffering through this podcast. But is you know, that how we're going to grow the coffee industry with the, the youth these days? <laughs> I is don't just know. trap them in a car with with the podcast? Right. It's like you listen to this. Well, you know, um, you can do a few things with that, and it's you know, as I can see that you bought those coffees new, and that's very cool. You know, you bought them fresh, and they age in your warehouse. So. Uh, Oh boy, uh, one you can do is, if they're not too baggy, if you're not too aged, you know, try to make espresso, put it in an espresso blend in like, you know, 80 to 20, like 80 baggy coffee, 20 non-baggy coffee. Is it still too baggy? Change the ratio. Yeah, let me, let me back you up just a little bit because okay. I think, um, yeah, blending of course is a perfect use for some of these coffees and I you know and these might be coffees that you purchase that are already going into a blend mm -hmm. um, you know a company that I once worked for this was exactly a problem we would have a major component of our blend was a coffee from one region let's just say Tanzania um, like 50% and boy when the new coffee arrived if we were just to swap in that new coffee for the older coffee yeah the blend would get better but also that change would be so cut and dry, all the customers would notice and complain, or some set of customers would. So, you know, in that case, it was exactly as you're describing, Valerian. and we would weave the coffees together. We mm -hmm. would introduce 20% of the new coffee for a couple of weeks, then go 50-50, then 80-20 until we were finally out of the old coffee and we had seamlessly transitioned into the new coffee. I think Cafe Deutsche has, I don't know if they do wholesale, but you know, because they have a uh, geese and six kilo geese and, and they do, uh, they have two cafes. So I think if there's not too much of it, obviously, if you have too much of it, boy, you better learn how to purchase coffee. But if you eat just a little bit of it, just, you know, I would incorporate it in an espresso blend. 95% of people drink espressos with milk, you know, so. Yeah, so it could be hidden there. Right. Yep. That said, you know, don't buy past crop coffee on sale and use it in your cafes. I'm just saying what to do with the coffee once you, right. you know. Yeah, and, and I think everybody does end up with old coffees at some point, mm -hmm. right? You book all of this coffee if you do have a wholesale business and you lose a customer, right? Or you book this coffee with the anticipation of a huge new account coming on and that doesn't materialize. Um, so, you know, there's you know options there. One, as we've been discussing, um, another option is to 
find a buyer for that coffee. You're right. Talk to your importer, mm -hmm. talk to your network. There are companies out there that will buy that coffee. It'll be at a loss to you, maybe a significant loss, but you'll be able to unload it. You won't be sitting on that inventory. It won't be in your position. That could be an option. Right. Probably a less than ideal option. Um, and Matt, I think, you know, reading your question, we're dancing around your what you want, which is what the heck do I do with this coffee in my roaster to maximize what's left in the coffee since some of that vibrant, juicy, those wonderful qualities have started to fade. Am I right, Valerian? Do you, do you read this the same way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you want to basically uh, make a dead cat alive or right. dead horse right. alive. I like cats, so I like horses anyway. So you want to make something dead alive. So your zombie coffee. Zombie coffee. Uh, but no, I mean, all, all joking aside, I think you know, there, there's a few approaches to this. One, um, you could always, as you first notice it starting to fade, roll that into maybe a darker roast something where you are caramelizing the sugars a little more, the acids aren't quite as important, um, and it can become your French roast or you know, whatever your dark roast is. Um, rolling it into a blend is an option, as we already discussed. And if you still sort of need to use the coffee at the roast level where it is, you know, I would recommend extending your roast times. So if your typical roast is maybe first crack at nine minutes and you're finished around 12 minutes, yeah, maybe you would extend um, the Maillard reaction to 10 minutes, mm -hmm. hit first crack then. You know, maybe you would extend the development time a little bit. You know, techniques that in a fresher coffee might bake it in some ways. Mm -hmm. But here you're kind of maximizing the opportunity for um, those sugar browning reactions, Maillard and caramelization, um, and hopefully coaxing out what flavors are left. That's what I love to do to decaf, you know, kind of like bake it a little bit so you get it of that kind of metallic, you know, aftertaste, so. Yeah, I was just roasting and cupping a bunch of decafs these last few weeks for a client that we're working with. So that, that one's near and dear. And yeah, just, you know, trying a little bit of a different approach. Um, that would be my recommendation, Matt, is try just a little bit, you know, slower, not overly slow, see what the results are. Um, I think you'll find that it, you're able to coax out a little bit more you know, sweetness, maybe not that wonderful juiciness that you that you mentioned in your question, but I think you'll be able to maximize the sweetness and minimize some of those off kind of woody, papery, baggy characteristics. Yeah, Matt, that's a great question though. And um, if you do try it as espresso or try some of these techniques, please you know, ping us by email and let us know what your results were. And um, we're happy to share that with everybody the next time we Record a podcast, too, if we get some answers. Right. Do triang triangulation with your uh, customers. 100%. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Let's move on. Thanks, Matt, for the question. All the best to you and your family. Great. We're moving to Samir Youssef's question. Mm -hmm. um, and he's roasting, um, it comes back to small batches. He has a three kilo roaster. They're roasting a maximum batch of... 2.5 kilos of green, um, primarily from China and Indonesia, roasting those coffees separately. Um, they This was a topic we covered up in another episode about blending pre-roast or post-roast. They're post-roast blending. Um, and the issue that they're facing is that they get color inconsistencies in the roasted coffee, mm. even in one batch. Um, 
they're roasting to a medium dark roast. Um, basically, they are dropping the roast to batch immediately after the end of first crack. Um, I would call that a medium roast, but that's why mm -hmm. these terms don't really have much, you know, we don't have firm definitions. And he's just looking for help in how to get color consistency. Um, and boy, you know, this is a hard question for a few reasons. I feel, you know, for one, we don't have quite enough information to really answer this question. Um, you know, I would want to physically take a look at this green coffee. I would be very curious what the moisture content is. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, what the water activity and storage conditions are. Um, how is this coffee produced and processed? Um, you know, are these wet hold coffees, the Gilling Batash coffees that are so common in Indonesia? What about the coffees in China? Um, because all of those things can yield some inconsistencies. Um, and I would also like to see the roasted sample because mm -hmm. I wonder if the inconsistencies are just a high incidence of Quakers that are coming through mm -hmm. exactly. um, as opposed to sort of bean by bean inconsistency. Um, even I wonder, do the inconsistencies mean that each bean looks unique or is there some color inconsistency even within one bean, bean right. which could be indicative of tipping or facing um, if you're kind of entering first crack, particularly with too much momentum. So Samir, I wish that I had an answer, um, but I just end up with more questions. Um, you know, I think one, you know, one thing that I would take a look at is, you know, carefully review and you can find these standards um, in the SCA. You could also, of course, just Google um, Quakers just to make sure that what we're talking about aren't just Quakers. Um, the SCA is very unforgiving of Quakers. They don't allow any of them. Um, however, they are fairly easy to sort out of your coffee um, by hand because they do stand out so sharply. Um, and if they're not Quakers, if you are in fact seeing inconsistencies, um, I wonder how the coffee tastes. Does it sort of taste otherwise like a, a fresh, lively, um, well-roasted medium coffee, but with some hints of ashiness or smokiness? And when you look at the beans, is the color inconsistencies primarily concentrated at the tips of the bean, like where the embryo is, where you would see tipping? Um, is it along the center cut where you would see kind of that widespread facing, um, that widespread tipping, which we call facing? Um, because that would tell us more. You know, if it is tipping, I would say try a lower gas approach. You know, I don't know what your roasting style is, but if you're starting out with, you know, kind of high gas and then stepping down as you approach first crack, you might be storing a lot of energy in that coffee and having kind of an explosive first crack that could lead to that, you know, especially often with um, Indonesian coffees and what little experience I've had with Chinese coffees. Um, there sometimes are slightly lower density. I often approach those coffees not unlike some Brazils. Um, where it really is kind of a moderate gas from beginning all the way into first crack so that I get a nice controlled crack, but not anything so explosive that leads to that tipping. Yeah, uh, so these would be roasting mistakes, but there might be the processing mistake, which I'm fighting with Amnish coffee. 
and that means that you know if you look close to the roasted bean, it's bit like patches on it. There are some parts which are better roasted, some parts which look like lighter. And this disappears when you go to dark roast, they're all even. But before that, they, especially light roast and light medium roast, are kind of like, you know, pure discoloration. When it comes to flavor and, uh, uh, let's say, uh, storage time, it's all okay. So we don't have issues with that, but the look is not the best. And we think it's the processing, you know, there is some parts which were not dry properly. This is sun-dry natural. Yeah, that seems, I, to me, I would that this sounds like it would be a drying issue, issue right? right? Do you see like smaller, more pale spots on the green coffee on your example, Valerian? And the same question to you, Samir, or is the green coffee totally uniform or do you see kind of pale spots and deeper yeah. Yeah, yeah. colored spots, which probably an issue with drying, maybe not dried slowly and completely all the way through. Mm -hmm. So if you were to take moisture readings different times of the day and day by day, you might sort of see an oscillation of the trend. High moisture, low moisture, high moisture, low moisture. The average might come out fine. Um, that often points to water activity. So if you have access to a water activity meter, you might find a very high water activity, which would indicate that there's just too much free moisture in the coffee and it's not sort of evenly distributed and locked in the cellular structure. Yeah, that's our case with Amish coffee for sure. And you know, what we try to do is like, we, uh, we have a, we write on a concrete patio and we try to do more turns, you know, per day. But you know, I think that the fact that it's just a baking sun in Brazil, that's not enough. So we probably have to put it under shade or something. Right, you know? and I, I seem to remember talking with, with William about it. The drying times are quite fast yeah. during the period of two or three weeks, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. Where often for a sun-dried natural, you know, we might expect one to two months drying time right. to really slowly control that drying and make sure that the coffee's evenly dried all the way through and has a stable water activity. So Yusuf, send us a picture of whether, you know, how it looks like because then you can determine whether it's a roasting defect or that, you know, something happening to roasting or maybe it's a processing mistake and then you have to contact your importer or farmer and tell them about it. Yeah, I would love to see photos of both your green coffee and your roasted coffee, Samir. And let's um, let's take this up again. Um, I know that we probably didn't answer your question, but hopefully we gave you some avenues to track down um, right. to see what's going on on your own. Um, but with some photos, we're happy to um, provide further analysis, and we can you know respond to you by email and queue this up um, for the next podcast as well. Cool. Thanks, Yusuf, for the question. Thank you. Go for it. Next. So this is nice. I have an um, email here from Candy Shibley. Who, Candy, nice to hear from you, and thanks for your question. Um, you're opening your cafe in the fall of 2019 in Maryland, and you have a few wholesale clients with more interested. That's awesome. This is These are the stories that I love to hear about a roasting company that's going through a growth phase, wholesale customers are coming online, you have your own your own cafe being built out. It sounds like you're super busy, so thanks for taking the time to write. Um, and you know, basically you have kind of two issues, but they're related. You know, The crux of it is you have uh, potential clients who want a tasting. They um, have equipment, but it's not connected yet. I think that's the case for you and your business. That also might be the case in their business. Um, 
So you're looking for portable equipment that can help you with tastings um, as you get your shop built out and maybe as you have clients who are also in the planning and build-out phase. Mimic Portable equipment which mimics espresso. That's important here. Yeah, well, that was the second part of the question, was oh, okay. specifically mimicking espresso because I think you know your, your clients are probably going to need to get a sense of what your coffee tastes like as brewed coffee and as espresso. The brewed piece, that's easy. We have so many beautiful tools for doing pour-over coffee, and if you're confident in your abilities to create a pour over, it's not a big investment. Um, even easier would just be to invest in a brewer from Bonavita or just if you Google SCA home brewers, you'll see a list that the Specialty Coffee Association has certified. You can spend from, I think, $100 to $1,000 probably on these tools. But you know, that way you can get a nice solid brewer that'll brew a consistent, delicious cup of coffee. Um, the other investment would be in some sort of a grinder so that you can grind that coffee fresh. When you do these demos of brewed coffee, um, demonstrate that as being a key component of coffee quality to your future accounts. So the tricky, the, the tricky one though is mimicking this espresso. Um, espresso or espresso? Oh, if you're in a hurry, espresso. No, espresso, <laughs> Sorry, of course. I mean, unless you live somewhere on the, in the Old West along the Pony Express route where you can have your Pony Espresso, no, it should be Pony Espresso. I just saw like, a very funny joke about a cat jumping out and it's like, after I had my first and it was Espresso, which ruined it for me. I was like, no, oh, no. just learn how to spell it, man. I would even share that. It was so funny. Oh, no. no. So it's Espresso, not Espresso. So portable espresso equipment. Um, you know, the good news is there is amazing portable espresso equipment. The bad news is it costs a lot of money for true portable espresso machines. This would be something like a La Marzocco GS3 mm. with like a Mauser mini grinder. You know, these are tools that are commercial grade, single group, you can put them in the back of your car, take them around. A lot of catering companies use these. Um, the Linea Home is another example from La Marzocco of this type of machine. And that doesn't just mimic espresso, but it actually will produce high quality, commercial grade espresso um, and give you steaming power to craft lattes and cappuccinos. So your customers really get a full picture of, of this type of a of drinks um, and what your coffee is capable of. Of course, they're crazy expensive. You might be looking at a fifteen to twenty thousand dollar investment for this stuff. Maybe not quite that much. The good news is, I mean, it could be a whole aspect to your company. You could offer mobile service and catering and and grow in that direction and put that equipment to good use. It could also sit in a lab for quality control for ongoing purposes for training your staff off the floor. So there are, there is a business case to be made for this kind of investment. Um, that I don't think is quite what you're looking for an answer. That would be the the dream machine to get this stuff set up. Um, I'm going to defer to Valerian for an answer to this because I know that I have had some tasty espresso-like beverages at his home um, on a manual machine. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's okay. So I was thinking about this question on a way here because it's it's a it's an excellent question. It's like intellectually very challenging. 
because there is one way is what kind of espresso beverage you make at home and one what kind of espresso beverage you make for your potential customer when you actually have to really pitch and not make any mistakes right so if i were you i would try to focus on uh pour over like just do a beautiful chemex it's a beautiful experience you know if you swirl the brute chemex you can make you know people smell it i think that's you know ultimate experience it's very as i call it sexy it's very cool but if you really do have to do espresso i have a little like espresso machine at home called rock and it's not really you know it's manual you can do a lot of like hacks on it like you can adjust the temperature and you know how fast or how slow you press but it's extremely inconsistent so i don't know if i would recommend that to take to a you know to a, let's say a, a meeting with a potential customer because you will you will lose your mind you know sometimes let's say the fifth shot is the one which i would kind of enjoy so imagine that doing five shots in front of you know it's like oh no let, let me do the next one let me do the next one you're getting more nervous it's just i you know it's a good toy for home i love it but not mm-hmm. for i would not do them also on that but you know you can go cheaper with the espresso makers i think that <clears throat> this this whole group of espresso makers based on the e61 head you know the fire mm-hmm. head and uh, i think you can buy use one between $1000 all the way to 3000 you know and you can do a demo on that with espresso that said once you are done with these demos that coffee maker is basically in your lab or in your home because you know it's it's too small for anything else yeah so i would try to stick to beautiful chemex experiences and just tell them that you know what you experienced here in this brewed coffee in espresso it will translate as and just explain them how I mean, there will be a day when they, you know, they will fall in love with it and they will say, okay, let's wait for a day when, you know, we have the equipment set up or we can visit your lab and you have your equipment set up mm-hmm. and play further. I think that's okay. I think that, you know, you will not lose customers. You will definitely lose a customer when you serve them inconsistent espresso. A hundred percent. So, yeah, I mean, I think if it's something that you can swing in your budget, look at some of these, you know, smaller commercial grade or mm-hmm. prosumer right. machines. But they are a major investment. Right. Um, but like I say, I think there are, are uses for them. One I didn't mention before is, boy, if your commercial machine goes down some morning, having a tool that you can just plug in and have up and running and keep some semblance of workflow going might be better than nothing. Um, but yeah, I think if, if a, a true commercial espresso machine for demos isn't part of your plan, isn't in the cards right now from a budget standpoint. Just showcase your coffee as a, a filtered drip pour over as beautifully as you can. Right. And that's going to wow people with your confidence in that and your ability to talk about your coffee as espresso. That's going to be the best. Yeah, and don't don't mimic. I, I, when I was reading mimic, I was like, oof. Because, you know, some people think that AeroPress can mimic espresso, which is right. no. You have these little things... Uh, you can buy them on Amazon for like 50 bucks, which is like you put coffee in it and you pump it and press it. Uh, there's other versions where you insert yeah. like a, a nitrogen cartridge right. or an oxygen cartridge. And yeah, it's, Don't they're, do they're that. All, they're all gimmicks. They're right. fun to have at home. Yeah. They're really fun at cocktail parties and they would fall apart for a business. Yeah. But for professional demonstrations, don't do that. That's, you know, you want, you want to do it let's say one way and it's professional and beautifully. So Yeah, 100%. Well, good luck, Andy. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, Candy, I'm excited to see here how it goes. So keep keep in touch with us about, about how this evolves. Um, 
And we have a quest, another question from our neighbor here in Fairfax, from Dan Gorman at Punto Fino Coffee. You, Fairfax. <laughs> All right, Dan. I'm excited uh, to, that we keep hearing from you, and I hope you come back um, to the lab and see us again soon. Um, and one is if you wanted to donate a portion of your coffee business po profits to coffee producers in need, how would you do it? Um, and boy, that's a million dollar question, right? And I think it's a really important question to ask. You know, I think rather, you know, things that make me uncomfortable is this idea of donate and this word in need because it sort of implies this charity. You know, I always like to think of the producers that we work with as partners in the success of our business and how can I share in the profits of their coffees back to them. Um, and I think either way, though, there's great examples of this. Um, you know, there's always just crowdfunding and engaging with your local community and talking to you know, your importer that you're sourcing this coffee from, finding out what the needs are on the ground, getting to know those farmers personally. Um, you know, one example, Sisters Coffee, Jesse, they're one of the owners and buyers. I took her to Rwanda one time and we visited many producers. She went back many times. She got to know the Niaminga Cooperative, which I'm their ambassador, just to be totally transparent. We've talked about that in other podcasts. Um, and Niaminga needed a well. They needed some way to pump water, not even a well. They needed a pump to move water half a kilometer. And, you know, she was able to kind of put together a plan with her local community and with crowdfunding and with a donation from bags where they funded this directly. That wouldn't have happened without an importer like Sustainable Harvest that could ha help manage the funds and see the project to fruition. So, you know, I think it's the, the kind of question that starts with talking with your suppliers and your importers, understanding where there is a need and if they have the ability to funnel those funds back to the producer in a meaningful way. Um, I always think that like the coolest way would be just to sell a cup of coffee for some oddball amount. My wife, Devorah, who's with Equator, she and I talk about this all the time. It's like, what if you charged $3.09 for a cup of coffee? And everybody would be like, why is it $3.09? That's crazy. And the answer is, well, oh, that nine cents could go right back to coffee producers and go right back to the farmers who grew that coffee. Right, what a cool opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it takes a very creative partner with boots on the ground in the producing country to pull that off. Um, so I think knowing your importers, talking to your suppliers, seeing what the needs are, and seeing if there's a mechanism to get funds back is really important. Or, you know, buy coffee from Unleash Coffee. I mean, I know I'm pitching myself, but you know, come on, I mean, there, there must be other companies like us. And if you buy coffee from companies like this, basically it's sold by the farmer. I'm sure that there's other Brazilian farmers selling coffee in the United States. Yeah, I think we I'm, have our coffees. Right, it's in Walnut right. Creek. And yeah, there are green coffee suppliers. Suppliers uh, or, or growers. I think they are just buying from other uh, farmers. Yeah, they're growers. Oh, they're growers. Yeah, okay, yeah. Cool. No. The, the family okay. that lives in Walnut Creek, it's the daughter of the farmer and her husband. Okay. And they've built an office here representing that coffee. And he might be buying from others there. And I'm sure that there's like, you know... Uh, other companies like that, just look for them. Yeah. And you know, we just had Snap Coffees visit mm -hmm. the lab last week. They're an Ethiopian-based company. Um, my dear friend Abenezer, who is a great cupper and coffee professional, Abenezer Afsa, and 
based in Addis. He's our quality manager. He was here with Nagusi, who owns the company. There's just a direct trade opportunity right there. and Monarch Coffee, right? Of course, There's guys yeah. from Hawaii, Greg Still, and making the amazing geishas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are opportunities like that. But for whatever reason, and you know, now people will hate me, we prefer to put sad pictures of the farmers on, on our you know, products. Yeah, that's what the in need made me uncomfortable with this question. Yeah, because so I think there are a lot of needs at origin. Um, but I think we should be celebrating them as our business partners, not as somebody who's right. in need of a handout. You know, you have to realize, you know, coffee, coffee farming is like another business and it's a very tough business. But any farming is a tough business. So, you know, just... If you can buy directly from the farmer, directly from the farmer, I think that would be the best, right? Yeah, it's a start. Yeah, it's um, yeah so it, it is tough. There's um, lots of mechanisms that have gone out there. I think you know, one of the best ways to support the industry as a whole is um, World Coffee Research has a whole mechanism where you can, through an importer, donate some cents per pound of coffee that you purchase. And that goes directly to World Coffee Research. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not helping an individual farmer in need. It's collectively hoping, helping the coffee industry survive because it's helping to fund um, variety and multi-location trials for agronomy practices. It's helping to fund seed bank research and identifying new varieties and new species. You know, I think um, if it's truly like a donation type um, donating profits. World Coffee Research is probably the best money spent right now. Seasonality. Yes, seasonality in coffee. This gets back to that other question about um, past crop coffees, right? Um, I think, you know, there's there's seasonality when coffees are harvested. You can just Google coffee harvest charts and you'll find them that have been produced by Cafe Imports, by, I think Royal Coffee has one. Um, so there, there's lots of charts out there that show when the harvest periods are for coffee. Um, I think a key to be aware of is that after the coffee is harvested and processed, it's gonna be dried, which could take one week to two months. After drying, the coffee will go into a period of reposo, which could be three weeks to two months where the coffee's kind of rested and homogenized before it's ever ready to be exported and imported and available for you to buy as a roaster here. Um, So there might very well be a three to six month window from the harvest period. Um, So it's the kind of thing I would just talk with um, importers. Right. And ask, you know, trust your importer as a valuable partner in this business. Um, You know, they're... Yeah, they're more than a middleman, I mean, despite the fact that there's one importer out there that has a great shirt that says, we are the middlemen, and it makes me so happy. I don't remember who it is. Um, but you know, they, they provide a lot of valuable services, and one is they're managing their inventory, especially if you're small and buying spot coffees, um, in such a way that um, you know, they don't want to sit on old coffee either. Mm-hmm. So they should be able to tell you when that coffee harvest was, when that coffee shipped, when it arrived, how long it's been in the warehouse, um, how much is available. I mean, boy, if I just pull up the offer sheets from Sustainable Harvest, from Troboka, from Mm -hmm. um, Royal Coffee, all of this information is listed there. Right. Um, And and the truth in a world faced with 
global warming and climate change is that when is a coffee harvest? I don't know. The harvest times in most countries are much less predictable now than they were in the past. Mm, that's true too. So it's, it's a great question. Um, it's just one with a complicated answer. Both of your questions, Dan, are, are for me, you know, hard to answer. Your first question about how to donate um, or how to share in your success with coffee producers is perhaps the most fundamental question that we all need to find a way to answer. Yeah, I love the Deborah's idea. If there's any way to kind of like add that value to the you know, everyday beverage, that would make a freaking giant difference and put it back to the farmer's right. pockets. And when you think about a farmer or a green coffee that you're buying for $3 a pound, you know, the, what the farmer earned for that is something far less. And so when you start thinking about, wow, if we can, if we can capture five cents per cup of coffee that we sell and you get 20 cents per pound or 20 cups per pound, there's a dollar more per pound of roasted coffee going back to a farmer. That's a massive impact. You know, I like that he thinks about this because I have to say that with Anish coffee, I was surprised how much people that don't care, you know, that this comes from directly from the farm and they came and they still, and I'm talking about consumers and they still ask me, is it fair trade? Like, it's from the farmer. I mean, what do you mean? Is that fair trade then from the farmer? And they're like, oh yeah, well, what, that exists, you know? Right, right. So, you know, it's, it's good that people think about it. And, you know, I agree with Marcus, for me as a practical guy who buys coffee, just follow, you know, the uh, wholesale um, emails from importers and they always, you can see what's afloat, meaning that those coffees are just coming into the, the warehouses. And I guess you buying coffee from the importers, you are not big enough or I don't know, but if you are, then, you know, importers are pretty honest about this. So you 100%. can see. And, and, yeah. and boy, when I was a, a trader for a coffee importing company, my very favorite customers, I don't, you know, big or small, if you were just buying one bag or if you were buying 300 bags, was somebody that I could call and say, hey, you know what, we have a container that is about to leave Mombasa. Are you interested in securing some bags on that and getting a contract for that? I can send you a pre-ship sample. That's awesome because even the smallest roasters can play in that and be guaranteed the freshest coffee as soon as it landed. Um, and of course, the big cats that wanted to buy a container load. So good questions, Dan. Um, and our final question, this comes from Rudy um, Altamirano from Luwak Coffee in Tijuana, Mexico. Um, my, Luwak? Yeah. Um, and I had a chance to meet Rudy at the Los Angeles Coffee Fest a few weeks ago, um, which was awesome. It's been a long time since I've stood at a booth at a trade show and met our customers and um, former students and clients of Boot Coffee and talked to people who could be future clients. Um, so Rudy, thanks for coming by and introducing yourself. We haven't known each other or worked together, but um, it's always cool to hear folks um, who are roasting coffee and working in coffee in a producing country. And your question has to do with um, drum speed the drying phase versus Maillard after first crack. When do you vary drum speed? How much do you vary it by? Why would you want to vary drum speed? Um, and as we talked about, you know, and on our call, it's a really hard question. Um, different roasters will respond very differently to drum speed adjustments. Um, and, you know, Frankly, I have experience on quite a few roasting machines, but not enough to be able to speak knowledgeably about this. 
other than to say, I never adjust drum speed in my roasts. Oof, I was just wondering that, you know, if you tell me that it's important, I was like, I never do it either. I'm not such a loser it's, now. It's like, you know, for me, the, the number one goal is, can I produce coffee that I'm really happy with by manipulating my fuel? Mm -hmm. You know, what's my gas level at what times during the roast? Am I hitting my milestones, my sensory milestones when I, when I expect? And is my coffee coming out tasting great? Once I can do that and do that repeatedly, I might start manipulating airflow. You know, I might try higher airflow in the beginning, lower airflow at the end, or overall high versus overall low airflow, just to see what the impact is. Mm -hmm. And then, again, make some decisions on how I'm going to roast my coffee. Um, you can even find, we did a blog post on pressure profiling, which is Giesen speak for airflow, um, based on some experiments we did with a slightly past crop Guatemalan coffee. This trend keeps coming back. Um, and also uh, fresh Ethiopian coffee. And you know, basically the results were inconsistent with airflow adjustments. Um, in some cases it made improvements, in others it didn't. Um, for some cuppers the coffee improved, for other cuppers it didn't. So starting with fuel, moving to airflow, if you have variable speed drum, that would be like the third element that I would start tinkering with once I really understood the impact of those two more major kind of meta adjustments um so yeah i mean it's it's interesting i think on most roasters maybe not all slower drum speed probably means more conduction you know maybe more browning on the surface of the bean less penetration of heat inside faster drum speed coffee's in the air more often you end up with more convection penetrating the bean deeper perhaps I don't think that that translates from roaster to roaster. I wonder about roaster construction, single wall versus double wall, how powerful is the burner? Yeah, there's so many factors that come into play. So I think it's a, it's a cool thing to tinker with. Um, I don't know that it's something that I would mess with. Yeah, there's only one reason why I would mess with it. I mean, I roast cocoa, you know, uh, the roasting cocoa is a much slower process. So I want to kind of lower the speed of the drum as much as I can. But that's, that's not coffee, right? That's, again, yeah, a very different a totally reason. Different. Yeah, and boy, imagine people that are malting grains in these machines mm -hmm. and things. So, yeah, so I, th I think it's a great question. And I love the spirit of kind of experimentation and innovation. Right. But I think that the answer is to wide open um and i'm i might be mistaken and i don't know we'll have to ask but mark uh, michelson who's the roaster at onyx coffee labs in arkansas he was the u.s roaster champ he and i spent i think two years ago um uh, some time together at our lab as he was preparing for the world competition um the world competition is traditionally used geese and six kilo roasters which we have here so those machines combined with our expertise, we often see these competitors come through. And if I'm not mistaken, when Mark went to compete in the worlds, he stepped up to the machine, he had his profile defined, he was ready to start roasting. Um, and things were just behaving very differently in the roaster. I think, Mark, you can kill me if this isn't true, or you just call me and we'll correct it in the next episode. But I think, that you stepped up to the machine, you started roasting, and the previous competitor had done something to change the drum speed so it wasn't set kind of at what you expected it to be. Mm. 
So even at that level, I think it's such a rare adjustment to make that people wouldn't think about revisiting that tool to baseline it once more. You know, I don't know how advanced Rudy is when it comes to roasting, but you know, I think I roast around 20 years and I'm still very careful to keep the variables to minimum. So, you know, yes. the, co- the coffee itself, the green coffee is so complex, you know, and it's changing so much. So, you know, if you put too many variables into it, it just messes you up, you know, and all the, the like, I'm a, I'm a skeptic, you know, if you tell me something, I want to try it, test it. And if it works, you're right, you know, so I want to try it myself. I always was like that. I like to play with that. So imagine that if you have all this information on forums, it will mess you up. So I think that you should develop your own style and playing with minimal variables and take it step by step. So for me, for example, even after 20 years, the speed of the drum is a no variable at this point. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, I mean, I'm constantly humbled by roasting and, you know, exactly. and I think well, it's, it's challenging enough to roast coffee to the same time and temperature and in roast color with hitting my milestones of yellowing and first crack and development times consistently. Um, why would I want to complicate that if I can make great tasting coffee? Um, I'd be happy to be proven wrong and, and I like tinkering with these things and, and playing it. But, you know, boy, when I'm faced with standing in front of a roaster and producing 10 batches of the same coffee that all tastes consistent, give me a profile where I maybe have three gas adjustments and that's it. Maybe on the complex end, it would be six gas adjustments and two airflow adjustments. Great. I can probably do that all day long. I can be a robot. Um, and duplicate that you start adding drum speed and other complexities and i to me that's just overwhelming that that speaks to maybe my limited experience of i don't know 10 years roasting so oh i'm a roast longer than uh, longer than you <laughs> i think oh, so wow uh, here is the thing if you want more of marcus uh he is at the boot coffee campus in San Rafael, there are some awesome courses. I attended a few of those, and uh, it was pretty awesome. I attended yeah. with Willem, the Q grader, with you. I attended the sensory, uh, especially coffee sensory class, which I found impressive and inspired me to kind of learn more about tastes and how these things work in, you know, like, uh, uh, from a like biological. Uh, level, I would say. Yeah, like our own physiology, exactly. psychology. There are some books out there about that. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, maybe next time, if you don't get enough questions from you guys, I will bore you with this, like how this sensor really works and you can talk about Q grading, you know? Yeah, no, I think that could be great. It's, you know, at the end of the day, all that we're doing is taking something that's inherently subjective and making it objective. Trying to make it objective. Exactly. Um, and it's cool. There's a young woman... Um, Umeko, who recently did a training class at Fellow, the coffee products company. They have a showroom in San Francisco. And she did a course that was all about kind of bringing the subjectivity back to coffee, I understand. <laughs> so I keep meaning to call her. Hi, Umeko. I know you um, are often on social media. So I, that's how I was aware of these things. But I think it's really cool that people are kind of pushing the boundaries with this too and looking beyond beyond the way that we currently do things i agree you know i'm always the you know the devil's advocate here and i feel that 
subjectivity will be always part of the whole experience. It's no matter what. Although I was impressed that you and Willem Booth can are so calibrated even you score coffees, you are like half points away. I was shocked. I was like, this is impossible. And consistently, you know, that's for me, like, there's very few examples when you were off, which is for me like a little bit scary too, because you guys, what you do, you giving a template how the coffee should taste like. A little yeah, bit. No, it, it is a 100%. Bit. It's a little scary. And that's like the handshake agreement that as an industry we've made. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, it's important to have that, right? The value of coffees and the livelihood of farmers and all of that is tied to the quality of coffee and at the kind of macro scale that coffee is traded, boy, we better have a common language and, and assessment. Um, but yeah, but no, thanks for, thanks for that Valerian. I hope that we see some of you here at Boot Coffee. We're just in the process. And um, by the time this airs, go to bootcoffee.com slash calendar. You'll see all of our courses scheduled through June of 2020. We have exciting new classes in green coffee, in brewing, like hand brewing and filter brewed coffees in addition to espresso. We're bringing on barista professional. We're going to do some courses in coffee processing with um, the Coffee Quality Institute and you know perhaps some other type of sensory classes with the Cup of Excellence, which has their own cupping form and their own protocols. Cool. So we're really excited for what the new what the new year brings. It's going to be awesome. And um, yeah, keep an eye on that. Hopefully we'll see some of you here. Cool. And if you want to see me, you can't. I'm digital. I don't exist. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I do the coffeecourses.com where we have the online courses for all of you who can't make it to the lab here. Um, again, starting from roasting to uh, coffee quality evaluation. We have a barista course and we are getting ready with a new course about uh, Q grading. And it's not a Q grader course. You cannot make a Q grader gro- a course online, but it will really help you to get prepared for a Q. So check out coffeecourses.com too. And you know, if you like it, just sign up and you can write to me, not see me because I'm not there. I usually do the videos. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll answer. <laughs> I'll answer, good. yeah. No, it's cool. We're having a good time with this folks. So um, send us your questions continually and I feel like we threw a lot of questions back in your laps today, so that's that's kind of cool. It means that they're challenging, really deep, kind of fundamental questions that that are challenging us. That's really fun. And you know, we don't have, we don't know everything. I think that's the awesome part of this industry that you know we have some ideas, and you have some ideas, and we develop something better for our future generations. Totally. I think students are always disappointed on the first day of a live class with me when I sort of say that what I love about my work here as a trainer is that you know i get to share some things that i've that i've learned that you know other colleagues in the industry have shared with me but the very best pieces is what i learned from my students because every day is a new day and i'm hyper aware of what i don't know so we want your questions and your thoughts uh and let's call it a wrap it's a wrap thanks everybody bye